After his long-term partner left him for someone she described as younger but more mature, David Bramwell knew it was time for change. He embarked on a global adventure to seek out his utopia, a community that would suit his singular needs and teach him how to be a better person. After months living with anarchists, free lovers, kinksters, spiritualists, and a community whose leader was called Mr. Dandelion, David heads to the States, where he thinks maybe, just maybe, he's found Utopia. Does it have free Wi-Fi? Does it stock his favorite biscuits? Is he finally over his ex? To find out, join us for another journey on the number nine bus to Utopia, an auditorium six-part special, episode five, the land of milk and honey. Since my recent adventures in the Italian community of Damanhur, with its singing plants, underground temples and tales of time travel, I really couldn't imagine anything in Europe that could top it, not even Alton Towers. I'd had my sights on America, however, right from the start. Where else offered such a dazzling variety of alternative lifestyles to sample? Co-housing, beatnik hangouts, hot tub communities perched on the Pacific. There was even an entire eco-city being built in the Arizona desert. The obvious starting point was the original epicentre of America's counterculture and weirdness, San Francisco. Hi, I'm trying to find Guerrero Street. English? Where are you from? Brighton. I've been there. You have that um, Indian palace, right? Oh, I love England and all those pretty villages. Where were you born? You wouldn't know. It's a town called Scunthorpe. Oh, my God. I bet it's beautiful. Um, yeah. It's like nowhere else on Earth. Guerrero Street. Mm. Well, it's pretty complicated. Actually, I'm heading that way, though. Would you want a lift in exchange for directions? You promise not to hurt me? I'm English. We're only dangerous when there's football involved. <laughs> First time in San Francisco? No, but I'm very happy to be back. I'm David, by the way. I'm Susie. I work at City Lights Bookshop. Where Ginsburg's Howl was first performed. Hey, that's right. So what brings you to our city? The search for utopia. I'm visiting different communities. Oh, you've come to the right place. So you know the Coquettes, then? No. You should. They were a drag queen community here in the 60s. Used to drop acid and perform shows at the old Pegasus Theatre downtown. I know them pretty well. Drag queens and LSD, now there's a heady mix. Are they still going? Sort of. A couple of them will be at a party tonight. Want to come? You have a beautiful accent, by the way. In England, the journey from meeting a stranger to becoming their new best friend is long and arduous. In San Francisco, it takes about 1 minute 30 seconds. The coquettes never did materialise at the party that night, but I didn't mind. I was soon surrounded by Californians, swooning at my accent. Hey, go on, say cup of tea. Cup of tea. Sexy voice. How some Brits can hate Americans just baffles me. I mean, where else but the States would a man born in Scunthorpe and raised in Doncaster enjoy such unwarranted attention? Hey, Mr Sexy English Voice, say adjustable spanner again. The following morning, I took the long coastal drive southwards down California's Route 101 to Esalen a stunning hot spring retreat perched on the cliffs of Big Sur. Esalen had been owned since the 20s by the Murphy family, who in the late 1950s handed the reins to their youngest, Michael. 
Fresh out of uni, Michael had been inspired by a recent lecture from California's newest resident, Aldous Huxley. Like the Coquettes, Huxley did more than his fair share of LSD, but drew the line at sequin dresses and heels. During his lecture, Huxley had announced that the world was desperately in need of a centre for developing human potentiality. Murphy decided it was his life mission to create one. He converted the family hot springs into a retreat at which to explore the nascent New Age movement. This was in a time when the words New Age summed up thoughts of cutting-edge therapies rather than shops selling dream catchers and books called Drink in the power of enlightenment-ness-ness. There was, however, a snag with Murphy's vision. Come the evening, the family hot springs were overrun by hirsute, violent biker gangs. They didn't take kindly to being asked to leave and make way for a yoga class. Murphy needed a caretaker, someone unafraid of taking on the bikers. Only one person applied for the post, a badass with a gun fetish. His name was Hunter S. Thompson. So, welcome, Mr... Um... Hunter S. Thompson. I'm sorry, I, I missed that. Hunter S. Thompson. Oh, right, right, good. Um, now, Mr... Um... I told you, man, Hunter S. Thompson. Um, you couldn't write that down, could you? Okay, right. Well, very nice to meet you, Mr. Uh, Thompson. May, may I call you Hunter? Sure. So, for in a few sentences, uh, could you explain why you want the job and the skill set you think you could bring to it? Well, all you say is he's got to come up here and they're mucking around. I'm going to take him. I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that. And I'm going to take that. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to go, oh, no. And I'm going to take that. And I'm going to take that. And I'm going to take Well, you got the job. It did the trick. The bikers were cleared out by the 21-year-old aspiring writer and all-round nutjob. Esselan was soon hosting workshops, yoga classes, talks, encounter groups, primal scream and gestalt therapy, and courses ranging from interpersonal intelligence to value your psychotic experience. However, Esselan did have its critics. Aslan propagates selfishness, individualism, and rampant narcissism. At Aslan, it's all about the self. Welcome to the me, me, me generation. For me, Esalan was love at first sight. I checked in at my wooden chalet, then headed down towards the cliffs. Tiny hummingbirds danced around red flowers. The sweet smell of eucalyptus and campfires hung in the air. There were gardens and swimming pools. Esalan was a verdant paradise like the Garden of Eden, but without having an omniscient dad cramping your style and getting narky every time you fancied a Granny Smith. And then I found what I was looking for, a large wooden sign that read, To the Hot Springs. To my mind, nothing says potential utopia like hot springs. I broke into a run. Move over for the newbie. Oh, thanks. First time? Yeah. Oh, you just missed the dolphins playing out there in the Pacific. Beautiful. They'll be back in a few minutes. So, what do you think? What, soaking in a hot tub perched on the Californian cliffs, overlooking the glimmering waters of the Pacific, waiting for dolphins to reappear? Well, it's no scum thought, but I think I'll make the best of it. English. Beautiful accent. I soon found my perfect daily routine. A morning soak in the hot tubs before breakfast, followed by another soak before lunch, and then I'd settle there in the evening when the sky swelled under the weight of stars. 
During the day, I took part in yoga classes, trekked through the redwood forests, and lingered over feasts in the food hall. Gently wrinkling away in those healing waters, I conversed with idealistic old hippies, merry pranksters, and even one afternoon, half the cast of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like, oh my God, Sam Michelle Gellar is like so hard to work with. And she's so fucking small. I mean, like tiny. Oh, I know. I mean, remember when we lost her down the side of the sofa? Are oh, you? Weeks passed. Like the Lotus Eaters in Tennyson's poem, I was cocooned in a soporific spell, far away from the concerns of the real world. Esselen had comfort, beauty, and hot tubs. I'd found utopia in a new age Californian spiritual resort. But nagging at the back of my mind was the suspicion that being fed, watered, and doing Tai Chi classes by the poolside, I wasn't really engaged in community life. I was actually on holiday. Like all good holiday retreats, it was relaxing, blissful, but relatively uneventful. On the final night, a group of us squeezed into one of the hot tubs to witness a meteor shower. We were joined by Hecase, an old-timer who I'd befriended over the weeks. You okay, David? You seem a bit quiet. I'm not sure I'm ready to leave, Hecase. <laughs> I see this every weekend, David. The sad faces of people who don't want to go back to their everyday lives and jobs. People think they found some kind of paradise. I love this land. It's utopia for me, but it's where I was born. It's in my bones. You really want to find utopia? I'll tell you where it is. Hey, Case, please don't tell me utopia is in my heart. It'll spoil our friendship. Well, that's all chicken shit. It's in what you do and how you do it. But you don't need any great quest or life-changing experience to find a better world. You just stop with a gesture and take it from there. Did I tell you my gum wrapper theory? No. You're walking in the forest. You see a gum wrapper? Pick it up. Become an example. You don't have to be holy. That's your first step towards utopia. Enjoy Esalen's beauty, David, and move on. Don't become a bliss junkie. Otherwise, you might end up like half the old bastards who set this place up and used to teach here. Why, what happened? All this beauty and pleasure untapped, living the good life, nothing to fight for, they drank themselves to death. The next day, I received an email from a young Russian lady, keen for us to meet and maybe even marry if I could only find the cash for her flight. I'd have liked to have helped out, but she seemed a bit of a fast mover for my tastes. There was also another email from my ex, Alex. Dear David, I thought I'd let you know that Dougal and I are leaving for Australia in the next month. I know you're in America, and I'm sorry I won't have the chance to say goodbye in the flesh. Funnily enough, Dougal and I have just returned from the States. We're at a mind-blowing retreat, a Shivananda ashram in the Catskill Mountains. It was such a life-changing experience that Dougal's parents have bought us 125 acres of rainforest in northern Queensland. How karmic of Dougal's rich parents. Please don't interrupt. We're going to set up Australia's first Shivananda ashram, It'll be our very own utopia. How could I not be pissed off? I've been upstaged by the woman who had prompted my own search for utopia. She knew I was looking for utopia, and so she deliberately goes and sets one up that I can't go to. Whatever the opposite of entrapment is, that's it. As far as I could see, there were two possible courses of action. One, ignore her and stay at Esalen. Or two, in an act of 
pig-headed masochism, spend a month in one of these Shivananda ashrams myself, and if I hated it, and I secretly hoped I would do, I had all the ammunition I needed to judge her new lifestyle and extinguish my yearnings for her forever. Or, at the very least, allow my mess of longing to be topped off with a, a cherry of self-righteousness. The next morning, I packed my bags and checked out of paradise and headed for a Shivananda ashram in Sacramento. Shiva 5.30 Om Namah Shiva 5.30 Here we get up at 5.30 in the morning and eat rabbit food. What is the point? All we ask is that you follow the experience and explore the results. Go through the pain to find peace. This comes with self-discipline of the mind, body and breath. The more you fantasise, the more you are unhappy. This life is about facing your illusions. The feeling of love is a sense of belonging, but love can cause us pain and suffering too. The problem is not that we don't love, but that what we love is imperfect. We will always find fault with the objects of love. In Hinduism, we think man is already perfect. He just doesn't realise it yet. To reconnect with that, we must love what is perfect, and that is God. Now, let us meditate. Satsang started and ended the day. Two hours of meditation, prayer, debate and singing followed by two hours of yoga, a breakfast duller than couscous-flavoured crisps, then two hours of work duty. The afternoon was a mirror of the morning. At 9.30, it was over. I'd entered Groundhog Day, a world of repetition. Top honcho was Swami Sitananda, a short Vietnamese lady with a closely cropped head of silver hair and a matriarchal manner, like a stern oriental Judy Dench. She was wrapped in orange, the colour of zeal and fire for burning away the ego and desire. The trainee monks in yellow, known as brahmacharyas, sat at her feet in reverence. During satsang, the Swami began sentences, pausing for us to complete them, scolding us if we answered incorrectly. Life is illusory, is it not? It is coming and... Going. 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 Good. Absolute universal consciousness is the only reality. That doesn't change. What about you? Are you your emotions? Yeah, no. no. Hell no, no. No, good. They change. Pain, pleasure, it's always changing, disappearing. Are we our bodies? Um, no. No. No, good. Our bodies change every three months. Every single cell is replaced. Do we have the same bodies as when we were children? No, 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 no. No, of course not. David, you are on a journey to find utopia. You must have questions. Yes, yes you, you must, must have, have questions. questions. Oh, um, is it possible to experience loss of self or a connection with God through sex? No. But how about through self-love? No. What about sensuality in general? No. What about if you... No. That was that dealt with. Or so I thought. Sweet Jesus. Satya! Satya had been at the ashram for nine months. He was in his mid-fifties and enjoyed telling me stories of his polyamorous relationships and experiments with psychedelic plants. He reminded me of Carl, the Belgian punk. Satya, too, wanted to shake the place up a bit. Perhaps you want to say something about sex, Satya. Nah. Why don't you ask someone who believes in the evils of the loss of semen? Satya! What about you, Durga Day? Sexual energy is, is the most potent in the body. Sex is something we, we, we can get addicted to, like sugar or, or, or alcohol. The loss of semen makes us weaker. 
less able to concentrate and can result in premature death. We need to learn to sublimate this energy, transform it into something more, more powerful still. Good. Now I'm going to read something from Swami Shivananda's Bliss. Not the bit where he describes women as leather bags of pus, blood, urine, bones and flesh? The Buddha said, a wise man should avoid married life like burning coals. Oh, God. The thing about burning coals is they do keep you warm. The next day, Sachi was gone from the ashram, having done a moonlight flit to San Francisco. The lure of drugs and sex was just too much for him. Sachi had a point, too. I'd read for myself some of Swami Shivananda's words about women. Given a choice between the company of a woman or enduring root canal work, the Swami made it clear which he'd prefer. For a man who'd supposedly broken through the illusion of life, some of his comments about the fairer sex were so misogynistic and deeply offensive they made Donald Trump look like Jermaine Greer. As time rolled by at the ashram, I was treated more like a resident than a newcomer and no longer immune to the chastisements dished out by the Swami. After gorging myself at a Thanksgiving meal that was followed by a flute recital performed by a man in white socks and sandals, I'd nodded off, only to be sharply prodded awake by the Swami. A couple of nights later, I had a satsuma thrown at me for snoring during a sitar recital. I tried to pass it off as my attempt at musical accompaniment, but they weren't buying it. There was a sobriety to the place, an absence of intimacy, games, storytelling and mischief. Opportunities for friendship had not been forthcoming either. Focus was on oneself and inner work. Chatter was discouraged. I could see the positive effects the ashram had been having on some residents. It was a refuge from the excesses of modern life. It had a positive effect on me too. I felt my mind getting calmer, my body stronger. But I was missing modern life. I was missing the city. And I missed a lack of any physical contact another of the rules of the ashram. It wasn't for me. Four weeks had felt like a lifetime. I was desperate to move on. And so on my final afternoon, Durgaday drove me to a car rental place in Sacramento where one journey ended and another would begin. It feels uh, weird coming into the city now. I, I get the urge to take my shoes off. It, it doesn't feel right walking around with shoes on. Are you happy at the ashram? Oh, very. But you, you catch me at a good time. It, it comes and goes. Uh, you have to work at it. There, there's always changes to deal with. Well, here it is again. The city. The outside world. Missed it? Yeah, I think I have. I thought about the ashram. If that was what Alex had mapped out for a future, she was welcome to it. It definitely wasn't my utopia. Maybe that meant that Alex wasn't my utopia-made flesh, either. After Esalan and the ashram, I returned to San Francisco to meet up with Remington, a woman who I'd met via the website Couchsurfing. Her taste for tribal tattoos, feather boas, industrial-strength weed and polyamory marked her out as a Burning Man aficionado. In true San Franciscan style, a friendship came easily as did an affair. Sure, you could sleep in the lounge, David, but you're welcome to join me in the bedroom. The next day, Remington recounted a family history, which played out like a Wes Anderson film directed by John Waters. What else is there to do when you've been raised by a strict Mormon family than flee Salt Lake City in favour of sin, freedom and San Francisco? We all did. All? Me and my three brothers. Are they all here too? <laughs> yes, honey. Stephen, the eldest, is a rent boy, Jono is my dealer, and Liam is a furry. Furry? 
Well, you know, he likes dressing up as a werewolf and having sex. Oh, that, of course, yeah, that. He's had relationships with coyotes, wolves and bears, but he's still holding out for a werewolf. Well, why compromise? That's what Liam says. Family conversations at Thanksgiving dinner must be interesting. Honey, you wouldn't believe. One evening, Remington took me to a shabby theatre in Oakland to see her favourite event, a poetry slam called Tourette's Without Regrets. Yo, we got any visitors from out of town tonight? Yeah, we got a Brit in the house. Thanks, Remington. Okay, Brit, get your tight ass up here on stage. You're going to be our judge for tonight. Uh, Give me a round of applause. Okay, Brit, if your genitals could talk, what would they say? He hands me the mic and points at my crotch. Um, uh, um, uh, uh, good evening, everybody. Good evening, everybody. Is that the best you can do? Give the fucking Brit a nice cup of tea. (laughs) Poets and rappers were brought to the stage for a freestyle rap event, a minute of high-speed put-downs, San Franciscan style. First up was a young black female rapper in gaudy streetwear and an overweight white guy who looked like he'd turned up in his soiled bedclothes. As the music begins, he faces the black girl. You ain't no slit rapper from the hood. You got lips like sun-dried banana slugs. You got so much shit and product in your hair. Post a selfie on Facebook, ain't no one press shit. Well, look at you, fat, dirty geek. Just some fat-ass Leonardo sleeping on the street. Still wearing diapers and squeezing your zits. Watching Judge Judy and sucking mom's tits. For the sake of the Brit in the audience, and we all know how uptight the Brits are, I'd like to make it clear that what you hear on stage does not reflect the real respect and love my brothers and sisters have for each other. It's just a bit of fun, so unclench your asshole, Englishman. How some Brits can like Americans really baffles me. Remington was away for a few days, seeing one of her lovers. Polyamory was an altogether new situation for me, and I was trying to come to terms with it. Finally getting over my ex, I was now having to deal with pangs of insecurity and jealousy at my new lover's lifestyle. It was like getting a stubborn beetroot stain out of the front of your favourite jacket, only to discover a seagull has crapped all down the back of it. That's a Valentine's Day I won't forget in a hurry. Thankfully, I had a welcome distraction. In the ashram, I'd missed the heartbeat of the city, its cultural diversity. But I hadn't really considered that communal living could be integrated into the pace and tumult of the city until reading about San Francisco's co-housing groups. These were self-directed communities within city centres where people could own their own flats or houses but share communal spaces, such as a laundry room or communal kitchen, in which residents could take it in turns to cook for each other every night. I got in touch with Joni Blank, San Francisco's co-housing coordinator, based in a converted warehouse in downtown Oakland. She invited me over to see her community. It had self-contained flats and several communal spaces, including a common room, kids' play area and a gym. On the fridge hung a list of good and bad things that had happened that week. The good list read... Alan and Michael 
cleaned out the dumpster. Talia helped Suzanne water Debbie's plants. Alan and her son washed several 10th Street windows. The bad list included... Tools disappearing from the workshop. Underneath the bad list, in a child's handwriting, someone had added... Alien abductions! Joni was in her late 50s with a soft grey bob and a yappy dog. A bit like a friendly American Judy Dench in a self-knitted sweater. We enjoyed a meal with her community in the shared kitchen space, then retired to her apartment. You know, David, the highlight of the week for me is our regular fix of the latest HBO series. In the past, I'd have sat at home watching it alone. Now Thursday evenings are like a party at my house, about 30 of us squeeze in. So how many co-housing communities are there now in the US? Over 150. It's only a small number, but it's growing. In Denmark, over 5% of the population live in co-housing communities now. It's the future. Do you notice how the sink overlooks the common area? The idea of this is to connect with the neighbours. Privacy is here if you want it, but we came together for more of a sense of community. We eat together three times a week, work together and look out for each other. <laughs> it's what I always wanted. At my feet, her dog appeared to be getting amorous with a Scooby-Doo toy. <laughs> look at my cute dog. He's got sex on the brain. Always humping his Scooby-Doo toy. I, I couldn't help notice how many books you've got on your shelves about sex. Are you a bad influence? Do you read them to him at night? <laughs> no. I worked in family planning in the 70s and became a sex counsellor for pre-orgasmic women. Back then, the shops were so sleazy and male-orientated that it occurred to me that San Francisco needed a women's sex shop. I set up a nice, clean place to sell sex toys for women. It was the first of its kind. It was called Good Vibrations. Oh. Oh, I get it. Hey, uh, do you want to see my 100-year-old vibrator? I've been away from home for over 10 months now. Whilst I was getting Alex out of my system, I was also aware that my feelings for the polyamorously perverse Remington had to be kept in check, owing to the other men in her life. From the aesthetic challenges of the ashram to the paradisal highs of Esalan, I was still learning about sharing, about myself, how I related to other people, and that immersed in life as an ashram, it really is possible for me to go four whole weeks without chocolate, masturbation or alcohol. Well, one of these anyway. Now, exploring the very appealing idea of co-housing, I found myself in the company of a sex shop pioneer, admiring her Victorian sex toys while her horny hound humped Scooby-Doo. Believe it or not, David, despite its epic scale, this is actually a butt plug. Out of the blue, I had an urge to be back home in my own kitchen, wearing my old dressing gown, making a Horlicks and listening to a Radio 4 programme about the history of teapots. But I still had one last place to visit and I had a feeling that this time I really would find Utopia. The Number 9 Bus to Utopia was written by David Bramwell with additional material by Dave Mountfield. It starred David Bramwell as himself, with Emma Kilby, Graham Duff and Dave Mountfield in a plethora of small but essential roles. Script editor was Graham Duff. It was produced by David Bramwell and Andrew Mailing, and is a special six-part series for the Auditorium Podcast, funded by the Arts Council England. Music is by Oddfellows Casino. The book, The Number Nine Bus to Utopia, is available to buy on Amazon, and is even funnier and more philosophical than the podcast. Yeah, I know, it's hard to believe. The Auditorium is also a best-selling book, 
full of fascinating stories about pioneers, outsider artists, adventurers, and counterculture heroes. It's published by Hodder and & Stoughton and is available from Amazon and all good bookshops.